This is the Kineo Equipping Podcast. All right, last week, uh, the faithful remnant, this is what we're calling you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Those who have secured their salvation. Yes. Those who have, <laughs> and you will be glorified after this. Right. Like, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the progression here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's honestly not surprising, though, because uh, part of, uh, and I think, I think I hit this on the first week, particularly when it comes to, th- to tier three equipping, um, it's a lot. Like, it's, it's, it's a notch below, like, seminary-level instruction, but uh, it's certainly a notch above, like, how to parent or, you know, gospel-centered marriage, stuff like that. All good stuff, but it, it is a bit more academic in nature. And so if you felt like it's a fire hose, it's like, yes, it's a fire hose. And, and most, like, if you were standing in front of a fire hose, uh, most of the water would be running off, you know? Like, you're only going to be able to, to retain so much until you're like, I, you, I can't get more wet. Like, it just, the rest of it's going in the, in the gutter. And so, uh, and that's okay. We, we kind of expect that with classes like this. Um, so if, you've, if at some point you've gone like, I don't understand half of what was said, it's like, yeah, and that's on purpose. Yeah, seriously. Especially so, tonight. <laughs> yeah, so um, what I want to do real quick, and... I'm talking about us, too. Yeah, us, too. We are with you here. Um, What I want to do tonight, you'll see in your notes, I just want to recap the last four weeks. So the way that this class was structured was it was kind of like a Trojan horse of Old Testament and New Testament survey. We call it the story of God, hoping that that would kind of, like, trick people into coming (laughs) to it. Okay? So it worked relatively fine. Um, But... The way that we kind of structured it with that kind of survey perspective was walking through the different genres of scripture. And so that's why, uh, like, we had kind of like a catchy heading for each class. But really, the first week was Pentateuch. Second week is historical books. Like, we're walking through the different genres of scripture because you need to... You need to read different genre. You need to read genres of scripture differently. Uh, I think sometimes people get hung up, uh, particularly as you get into the Old Testament, when it's like if you try to read the whole Bible like you would read uh, a letter from Paul, uh, that's going to be really difficult for you to do because every book isn't written as an epistle, as a letter. Uh, there's different things going on there. But I just kind of wanted to walk through and summarize kind of the overarching things that we wanted to see in each week. And hopefully it'll kind of like like weave this thread. You know, you've got your notes and all this like, how, how in the world does any, how do I make sense of any of this? Hopefully uh, this will kind of help. And so the, the first week we saw in the Pentateuch that humanity was created for relationship with God to glorify him throughout the earth. So Adam and Eve created, be fruitful and multiply. In a sense, what he's saying is don't just, don't just be fruitful and fill the garden, be fruitful and fill the earth. There was meant to be a multiplying effect of the glory of God. And so, but then what we saw was that that relationship was separated by sin. And then we saw that humanity can't restore that relationship on our own. And so God gave us his law to teach us how to relate to God and with other people. And so that's really what you see in the Pentateuch is relationship with God, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my glory. Sin separates that relationship, and then we're given the law. How are we to interact with God, and how are we to interact with his people? So that's where you see uh, Leviticus numbers in Deuteronomy, really. It's kind of like, here's the law, and here's here's how that starts to play out. So then week two, we jumped into the historical books, and then what we saw there was how God's covenant people continued to be unfaithful to his covenant, right? And so like, like the book of Judges, what we're in right now on a Sunday is part of the historical books, how God's people are, are uh, God's covenant people continue to be unfaithful to the covenant that they have with God, but that God, uh, that even amidst their unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. And that Cody kind of highlighted that this morning, even when um, God raised up a judge, even though Israel didn't cry out for one. Like God is remaining faithful to his covenant uh, with his people, even though his people are unfaithful. And so that's what we see, God's covenant faithfulness to an unfaithful people throughout the historical books. So then, so we get in, into the Psalms and the wisdom literature. Uh, and this essentially is we see what life looks like for those who follow, for those who follow God's wise ways and what, and what life looks like for those who refuse God's wisdom. 
So what does is, what is life look like for those who follow God's wisdom? And what does life look like for those who don't? And we kind of saw uh, the expression of that within the, within the Psalms and wisdom literature. Week four, we got to the prophets. So God continued to speak to his people through the mouths of prophets by calling them to return to him and live according to his ways. Uh, if they would do that, they would enjoy life in the land. If they didn't, they would suffer bondage and exile. So the prophets, again, are highlighting God's faithfulness, continuing to go to his unfaithful people, calling them to repentance. Here's what will happen if you repent and uh, and uh, turn away from your idolatry and follow the one true God. Here are the things, here's what you will enjoy in, in, that, in that covenant relationship and enjoying faithfulness within that relationship. But here's what's gonna happen if you don't. And so that's what we see in the prophets. So you see, uh, so you constantly see this like um, uh, grace, we'll, we'll call it grace, uh, like a good life, a terrible life. It's, you you kind of get feel like you're getting thrown back and forth where it's like, wow, the prophet's describing really great things and really terrible things. And that's because they're showing like, here's what life, here's what life could look like if you follow God. Here's what life will look like if you don't. So then we got to the gospel and acts. So humanity could never, uh, would never be able to keep the law perfectly. And so God sent Jesus Christ as the promised rescuer who would come and rescue God's people from bondage from the bondage of sin and position of judgment once and for all through his life, death, and resurrection. So Jesus is the culmination of God's covenant faithfulness to his covenant people because we can't perfectly fulfill the law. No matter, no matter how hard we tried, we couldn't perfectly fulfill the law. So instead of having the law over us as a judge, now because of the sacrifice of Christ and, and the indwelling of the Spirit, he writes, he writes his law on our hearts. So it doesn't stand over us as a judge, but now in a sense we're, we're in-laws to the law because the law has always been a good and gracious gift from God. Like the, the law, all that the law did was serve as a mirror to show us our sinfulness, which is a gracious act of God because in showing us our sinfulness, it also shows us our need for a savior and the salvation that we can have in Christ. And so that's what we saw in the gospel and in Acts. What we see is that the church is born, uh, the Holy Spirit is given, and then we get to the epistles and uh and this is where, this was last week with Jordan. So God's redemptive history, uh, which culminated in the availability of salvation through Jesus Christ, has necessary implications. And so that's when Jordan last week talked about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So because salvation has been made available through Jesus Christ, for those who have received that salvation, there are implications now of that salvation, living again as God's covenant people, that we've been given, we're not under the old covenant of the law, but now because we're the law's been written on our hearts. We're in the new covenant of Christ. And so we are God's covenant people, both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and there is a way to function as God's covenant people that has implications for what we believe and how we live. And so again, you see this like this common thread throughout all of redemptive history where it's like God is, is gracious, graciously showing his faithfulness to, to his covenant people and is showing them how to walk as his covenant people. And so that's what the epistles are. The epistles, the theologians would like hate me for saying this, but like, it's kind of like, you could maybe look at the epistles in a way almost as uh, like the end of the Pentateuch in the historical books, sort of, where it's like now uh, as God's covenant people, here's how we ought to live in relation to God and with each other. That That's all I mean by that. It's it's very different in other ways, but we won't get into that. So now bring all that into week seven, which is tonight. And what we're talking about here is uh, apocalyptic. And so apocalyptic literature is what we're talking about. That's the genre of literature. Um, so redemptive history culminates in the second coming of Christ, where God will pour out his wrath on Satan and unbelievers. He will glorify believers in eternal fellowship with him in his presence and establish the domain of his kingly rule and reign finally and fully. So really, all of redemptive history is leading to a culmination where God will judge judge unrighteousness, will judge Satan and unbelievers, and will glorify believers where we will live with him eternally in the new heavens 
and the new earth. Uh, and so it's kind of it's kind of the the return to the garden, you could say, uh, a return to a garden state at least. And so where uh, God once again is dwelling with His people, um, not only spiritually but also physically, which is what we see throughout the throughout the New Testament or throughout the Old Testament, which was the whole reason of the tabernacle. God dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden. Sin separated that relationship. Now God couldn't dwell with His people. The tabernacle and the temple were kind of a stopgap, quote-unquote, for God to dwell once again with his people. Uh, now, as we get into the New Testament, we're indwelled by his spirit. So God dwells with us spiritually, but we're, we're moving to a time where God will dwell with his people once again, both spiritually and physically. So apocalyptic literature is describing that culmination um, of, uh, of redemptive history. So we'll get into, sorry, I'm terrible with slides. There you go. You've got that in your thing, though. Um, so what is, we've got like a thousand pages of notes here. So we, we are going to fly, um, but hopefully we'll be able to have a little bit of time for Q&A. Uh, spoiler, when it comes to apocalyptic literature, you're getting, at least from what I'm saying, Jordan's, Jordan's a smart guy, at least from what I'm saying, you're getting about the max of my understanding of this genre of literature. So uh, ditto. we're all learning together oh, yeah. here. <laughs> oh, yeah. So if you feel like, oh, my gosh, like that's how we felt preparing for this. Right. Um, <laughs> so what is apocalyptic literature in the Bible? Apocalyptic literature is a group of writings that include divine revelation in which God promises to intervene in human history, overthrow evil empires, and establish his kingdom. So intervene in human history, overthrow evil empires, and establish his kingdom. <coughs> and so the books within this genre of apocalyptic literature, if you could just define it by books, uh, it'd be books like Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, and Revelation. Revelation being the most prominent New Testament book, obviously. Now, there's there's little kind of uh, um, remnants of apocalyptic language that we kind of see sprinkled throughout the New Testament, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit as it relates to like First uh, and Second Thessalonians. Um, but really, Old Testament prophecy anticipated this culmination in redemptive history, and so that's what you see in Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. You go like like oh, apocalyptic. Well, that, I thought I thought that genre was prophecy. It's like, yeah, the nature of their prophecy was apocalyptic in nature, and so they kind of overlap in that way. Um, so, yeah, like I said, New Testament apocalyptic is mainly the Book of Revelation, um, where John's vision is uh, Christ's second coming and the culmination of redemptive history. So then. Um, so as we talk about apocalyptic literature as a genre, it, it's it's incredibly difficult to to separate that from uh, from eschatology as a as a branch of theology. And so eschatology is simply the branch of theology that's the study of last things. Um, and so because it's so closely connected with apocalyptic, uh, it deals with questions concerning the consummation of history, the completion of God's work in the world, and um, and is often the last uh, the last range of study in theological studies, which is why um, in most theology books, these are kind of the last chapters in a class like this. This is why this is the last class, because it's talking about the culmination. Um, it's talking about the study of last things. All right. Um, so, that, yeah, that's why we're doing that. As we get into uh, understanding apocalyptic literature, understanding eschatology, uh, there's a few most of what tonight is, it's giving you kind of um, um, frameworks, all right? And so we're not going to walk through every chapter of Revelation. Sorry, I know you're really looking forward to that. Uh, but we're not going to walk through every chapter of Revelation and answer every question about all the symbolism and all that stuff. Um, but we want to give you some frameworks that'll be helpful as we approach apocalyptic literature um, and, and, and some uh, some. Um, some eschatology that'll help kind of inform uh, how we can gingerly walk into these uh, really difficult waters, as it were. So Jordan's going to cover us four schools of apocalyptic interpretation. Yeah, so uh, 
typically you read through different systematic theology books or whatever, they'll, they'll, they'll put these uh, schools into four different categories. Um, <clears throat> I think these are really helpful. So the, the first one is uh, historicism. Uh, and for, for a lot of these, you guys can write this down. I mean, uh, it's basically how do you understand Revelation 4 through 20, verse 6. Right, so the first three chapters are the the letters to the churches, and most people are like, okay, yep, that that was for their town, and that was applicable to the the church in Ephesus and all of that. Um, but then you start getting into four and twenty six, and it's like, okay, things get wild and crazy. Now, how do we how do we think about these things? Um, historicists would understand that chunk to symbolize the chronicle chronological order of successive historical events that span the entire era from the apostolic church to the return of Christ in the new heaven and new earth, right? So they would look back on uh, different parts in Revelation 4 through 20, verse 6, and say, oh, that was the Roman Empire, and, and this is actually the church today. And so there's like historical events that they would pinpoint with these different symbols and things going on. Uh, so we have a, a chart for each of these. I think this is actually really helpful. Uh, so again, chapters 1 through 3, first century churches, that's their town. People mostly agree on that. And then you start getting, again, that chapters 4 through 19. So you start seeing, okay, medieval, reformation, modern church ages, like people, they'll like stamp things along the way. Uh, and then you get to that, we'll get to the millennium, uh, chapter 20 in a bit. And then, and then all the rest of the book is kind of like that, that end time judgment, all that stuff. So, so that's historicism. So essentially what, the way that this looks is... Uh, if you've ever seen those YouTube videos of, like, natural disasters, and it's like, this is signs of the of the end times, like, all this stuff. Like, this is essentially a, a historicist interpretation. It's like, oh, all of these things are happening right now, in a sense, or being unfolded throughout uh, what we're experiencing right now, right. which is what you kind of see with the seals, trumpets, and, like, medieval, reformation, modern churches, stuff like that. Yep. Yep. So, so that's historicist. Uh, can maybe go to the other end, and you got the the futurists or futurism. So this is gonna uh, see four through twenty or through twenty two uh, as events still future to us right now as readers, right? So we're reading uh, right now the Bible, and these things that are happening in Revelation are still off in the future, very distant future from John when he wrote the book of Revelation. Um, so if you look at this chart here, right? So same thing for one through three. Um, but then you get uh, like that medieval reformation, modern church age, and, and they see like four through 20 all moving towards uh, like rapture, tribulation, second coming. Everything's like still yet to come. Um, we're going to hit this maybe more uh, or we will in a bit, but uh, you can see on the top dispensational premillennialism. Um, if you look at that box that says rapture believers raised, uh, that's going to be different from if you go to the next one historical premillennialism. So there's no rapture. And again, we'll get to this more in a bit. Um, but it's the same type of uh, idea. Everything's still in the future. Um, but uh, 4 through 19 is all represented maybe in that tribulation and the millennium to come and all those things. Uh, so I say all that. Um, and I don't know if you want to send out these slides later because I do think these things can be helpful. Yeah, but I can send the PDF out. The PDF out. Yeah. Yep, yep, that'd be great. Um, so you can look through these more closely. But Please use these words <coughs> in like a game of Scrabble. Oh, that'd be like great. A, like a million points. Yes. Right. Premillennialism. Uh, the Make sure the P ends on a 10, though. Yep. Right. yep. Or on a triple word. Okay. That's what you want. Uh, essentially, futurist, like if you want to summarize it, Revelation is talking about events in the future that haven't happened yet. Okay? So like that's basic. So that's like the details of that. Next is preterist, preterism. Um, preterist, like that, the, the word literally means like the thing that is past or has passed. So it sees the fulfillment of most of Revelation's vision, visions as already occurred in the distant past during the early years of the ch uh, Christian church. So they'll associate Revelation with like the fall of Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. And like all of these things have already happened. Uh, now, if you go to the next slide, I mean, essentially you're going to call them partial preterist because not everything obviously has happened yet because you get to that millennium and uh or like the dragon and all that stuff so partial in a sense but like 12 through 19 they see that as rome's fall that would be a preterist view like all of that has already happened and then the millennium is like yeah medieval reformation to today like we are in the millennium if that makes sense so so that would be a preterist so things that have already happened like back in the first century 
okay? Then you get to idealism. Um, so can be similar to historical in a way, um, but maybe the main summary is they see everything as a way more symbolic in nature. Um, so uh, a large part of the prophecies in Revelation are symbolic with the exception of the second coming and the final judgment. In essence, the kingdom coming is not viewed as being an actual physical reality yet to come, but is a spiritual reality that will be subjectively established for the individual. Um, uh, so again, the, if you go to the next slide here, um, you can see this. So it looks, if you go back to, you don't have to do this, Jake, but like if you were to go back to the historical view, it, it, it looks actually kind of like the same, but then the millennium bleeds in there. Uh, but all of that is, is, is happening through history and through today, uh, but it's a lot more symbolic. It's not like attaching things to historical events. Um, and, and the millennium's like happening right now, like thy kingdom come, thy will be done, like that like the, the earth is being renewed even in, uh, right now would be a bit of maybe that idealistic view. Um, and then the last view, I, or whatever you want to call it a view, is maybe like a mixture of, of any and all of these. So... Um, I'm going to go to basic components. Anything else you want to say about those four schools? Though? Yeah, so this idealist school is actually really popular right now. Um, that's, the, that's where you get a lot of kingdom language. Uh, that's, where, that's where a lot of people will, um, your kingdom come, your will be done. Instead of on earth, they'll add the city that they're in kind of thing. Like on, on earth, or the kingdom come, the will be done in Cedar Falls as it is in heaven. Like now, not everybody is explicitly, when they try, when they do that, are they saying like, we're an, an idealist eschatology like they're not necessarily saying that but um but kingdom language uh is is a very interesting thing um and uh and we'll get into it a little bit later but uh but that when you start hearing people talking about inaugurating the kingdom of god um that i don't want to say red flags i would at least say yellow flags because there's a there's a lot of implications with that kind of language as it relates to broader realms of of theology and this is this is one of those implications uh and i would say a lot of people who, who use kingdom language don't probably understand the implications of that theologically so they're not trying to be any certain way i think what they're what they're wanting is genuine and good uh Unfortunately, I think there's probably uh, more specific language that could actually be used that's more helpful and theologically accurate. But anyways. Yep. So these basic components of eschatology. So I was taught this portion in my seminary theology class by Bob Thune Jr. out at Coram Deo. And it was stuff like this that was just really helpful for me as I walked through Revelation to have these things in my mind for me myself to interpret and be like, all right, well, which kind of camp do I lean towards and all these things? Uh, so the first one, and this is huge, is symbols, right? Uh, images that stand for something. Guys, you have to understand this with Re Revelation. If you, if you take everything in Revelation literally, uh, you're gonna find yourself in a lot of trouble and you're gonna be really confused where it's like, okay, so there's gonna be a dragon that's coming? Well, that's crazy and awesome. It was like, well, it's not- it's like that. Spyro. Yeah, that's right, yeah, Spyro's coming back. Uh, but even like as you're reading through the Carson book, he, he explained this, um, I don't know if he was intentionally doing this, but he was talking about Babylon. Well, Babylon is a symbol for a spirit of godlessness that's in every age that lives in those who are worshiping themselves, their successes, possessions. So Babylon is symbolizing something else. It's not saying that Babylon is still a kingdom today. It's just a symbol for something else. Uh, you could write this down, Revelation 12 through 13. Um, so a lot of crazy uh, symbols in 12 through 13. The way Bob Thune unpacked this, and again, um, I'll, I'll get to this, but like you gotta know your Old Testament to be able to really draw some of these things out. But he would say that the dragon's not an actual dragon, but that represents Satan. Uh, the beast of the sea, he would articulate as like a, some kind of like empire, whether it's political, social, or, or economic power, some kind of sheer oppressive authority. Um, the beast of the, the earth or the land, uh, you can see is symbolized as like a false prophet or any kind of non-Christian religion. And then the harlot that was, that's with the beast is, uh, any kind of like seductive power, uh, a suggestion, affluence, idolatry, all that stuff. So you combine all that. And what, it, what it's saying is like, yeah, Satan will oppose God's people and the mission of God through these things, power, authority, social economic power, false religion, seduction. So it's all symbolism pointing towards something else, okay? So symbols is really important. Um, again, we can't go through all the symbols, but, um, but we have keys as to what some of those things are. Uh, numbers, again, are also... Um, 
just realize symbolic in nature and, and I would say highly flexible. So hold loosely onto maybe some of these numbers. Uh, don't try and build your entire end times theology based on every number that's given. Um, for, for example, um, I remember teaching through Revelation 1 through Summer, at Somersault Company. Uh, and at one point it talks about uh, the seven spirits. Well, as you study out seven spirits, what's that, what that is implying is actually the Holy Spirit. So there's not seven different spirits that are like jumping around. It's, it's, it's a symbolism pointing towards uh, the Holy Spirit. So it's, um, it's that, that number seven, um, you guys see that a lot in the Bible. Seven symbolizes completeness or finality, right? So, um, so those are all, again, like numbers are pointing to either symbols. Um, uh, hold, hold, hold loosely to some of these numbers as you read through, um, through Revelation. So there's another thing, uh, Old Testament allusions, um, this is the third thing. Uh, guys, just a ton of Old Testament in Revelation. So Revelation's really hard to understand because you have to know Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah really well if you're gonna really interpret Revelation well. And that was like a light bulb moment for me. Where it's like, oh, it's not just Revelation where you can just read through it and understand. You have to know your Old Testament well to really be able to interpret Revelation well. So guys who know Revelation well, they know those books like inside and out, right? So Old Testament, got to know it. Um, cycles, I thought this was really interesting. The main driving points are cycled through the same time sequence. So uh, if you think of movies, uh, if you ever see uh, seen like Memento, uh, Memento or uh, Inception, they're, they're messing around with time. Like the, the movies aren't linear in nature. The director's uh, kind of messing with our vision of time. Uh, it's not chronological, it's cyclical. Maybe a bit like what Cody's talking about today in the Old Testament. Like we like linear things today, but, but maybe think a bit more cyclical in nature. Uh, so Bob Thune would talk about uh, Revelation 12, 13, that this isn't describing any one particular moment in history, but rather like a cyclical view of Christianity. Uh, so I, he drew this out. Maybe I'll just draw this real quick. But like, okay, so this would this be- is like the third time that whiteboard's been used. <sighs> yeah. I think you use I draw the, the bridge at, at launch point. So like, I'm the one for sure Only that's marked you use this, this whiteboard. Yeah, it's 100% true probably. <laughs> So here's like one view, right? So you have these different cycles that are happening in the church. And what maybe what's happening is, uh, for one view, is that they get more and more intense as you go. So there would be these cycles of like the church is flourishing and growing, it hits this point, and then it experiences a level of like persecution, right? And so in this view, it'd be like, Revelation is, is cyclical. It's happening over and over again, these oppressive of powers. And then maybe it culminates in something that the Bible calls the great tribulation, right? With, 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 uh, the, with this last persecution or whatever, right? So, uh, you know, and that makes you start asking the questions like, well, if this is true, like, where would America be at on this? Like, those are the questions I start asking. Like, I don't, I don't know, like if we're, if we're heading this way where we might, the Christians might experience more persecution where we're at today and all that stuff. But this would be like one view. Again, this will this, like let this stuff kind of mess with your mind a bit with Revelation. It's not all linear. There is a level of, um, of, of it being cyclical. Uh, but I thought this was really good. Like at the end of all of this, um, Bob Thune was like, what you gotta know with eschatology, the main point is this, God wins, right? <laughs> like Jesus comes back, he judges and God wins. So again, we're going to walk through um, some more views and, and frameworks that I think would be really helpful. Um, but it's, it's kind of fun to play in these weeds a bit and like kind of let your mind go to these different places. Like, man, well, how do I think about the cyclical nature of these things and pre-trib, post-trib and whatever. But as we go through this, just keep that like the main point in the back of it. Like at the end of the day, God wins. So Yeah. And I, and I think a reason why uh, <laughs> Well, a big mistake that can happen for people trying to uh, craft like equipping classes or Bible studies or whatever is if you throw it out there and just like ask people like, what do you guys want to study? Inevitably, what you're going to get in that is like revelation. You know, and I think part of that is because we kind of see it as this crystal ball where it's like, if I can just figure revelation out, then I can know exactly like how to, how to interpret everything that's happening in the world and where we're at in the in the loop-de-doo, you know, thing. Like, like, I just, 
it's almost like a GPS, like, okay, I'll know where I'm at in reference to where we're headed kind of thing. And, but then inevitably, once you get past the letters to the churches, which are, those are really, really fun, you know, but once you get past that, you're like, oh my gosh, like, what have we done? And you're only, you know, you're only in the end of chapter three. It's like, there's a reason when I, when we taught this at Somersault, I stopped at chapter like five. Yeah. I said, oh yeah, we're we're done after this. Oh yeah. (laughs) Past my capacity. Um, Um, and I think part of that is because with, with all these things, like it, like what Jordan had in reference to understanding Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah, it's like in order to, to understand these books, this isn't meant to scare us away from them uh, by any means. I mean, you get to the end of Revelation, it's like blessed is the one who, who reads this book. It's like, okay, this, wow, really? Like, cause I don't feel whole, I don't feel very blessed right now. I mean, by the, by the end you do, but all the way through it, it's like, how in the world is this supposed to make sense? Um, it, it's to heighten our awareness of the seriousness which, with which uh, we're to approach these books. And, like, uh, we're, we're to approach Scripture with respect in, in every realm, right? But particularly as we get into apocalyptic literature, uh, we need to know, like, that we can't enter into this flippantly because you are going to end up getting confused. Um, and so right now what we want to do in kind of, like, uh, setting up some of these frameworks is talk about um, tribulational views. Uh, and basically what we're talking about when it comes to the tribulation Jordan referenced the Great Tribulation. Uh, what we're talking about is the chronological relationship between Christ's second coming and the other events that we see in the book. And so, so this is particularly talking about uh, the chronology of the second coming of Christ and some different views that, uh, that people have when approaching that and, and how that kind of influences the way that we understand Revelation. And so what you see in uh, Revelation 1 through 3 is... Uh, these are these are the letters to the seven churches, and then Revelation four through five uh, is the vision of the throne of God and the opening of the scroll and the seven seals. So one through three, seven churches. Four through five, throne of God, the opening of the seven seals, um, and then six through nineteen. So the so the, the majority of the book is the description of this great tribulation, what's happening during this time. And then you get to Revelation twenty, uh, which is in reference to the millennial reign of Christ, the defeat of Satan, and um, and judgment. So that's where we get uh, twenty through twenty two. Uh, so that would that's helpful because it's this is talking about the chronology. So all of this like historicist, futurist, preterist, all that stuff, uh, these things will inevitably become intertwined because the way that you understand one thing actually affects the way that you understand some other things as it relates to a, like a historicist or futurist view or, uh, or your millennial views, which Jordan will get into. But the Great Tribulation is, uh, is understood either literally or figuratively, depending on where in those views you can fall, uh, as being a seven-year period of tribulation before the return of Christ. And so what we're talking about specifically is a seven-year period of, of tribulation. Um, and so the issue at hand is in relation to whether there will be a separate coming of Christ to remove the church from the world prior to this great tribulation or whether the church will remain on earth during this period of tribulation. So seven years of tribulation, the question is, will Jesus come before those seven years to take the church with him? Will he come in the middle of those seven years? Or will he come after the seven years? And so uh, maybe you've heard the word rapture before, like the rapture. This is That's what this is talking about. Uh, and we'll get to why the word rapture uh, depending on where you land, may not be a helpful term. One, because it's not found in the Bible, but two, there's some implications for it. Um, if you've ever read the Left Behind series or watched the movie, uh, the, this is this is kind of what we're talking about. The, and we'll get into pre-tribulation, uh, pre-tribulationalism at that. Real, real kind of interesting note, though, like Left Behind basically kind of defined the eschatology of an entire generation, uh, maybe without them knowing it. All right. So if, if you've ever interacted with those series, you might find yourself going like, well, that's what I thought. But it was only because I read these movies or watched, you know, this book and Kirk Cameron kind of was my theology teacher in this. You know, what's but like the guy who wrote the Left Behind series was on the board at Moody. And so like I'm like, I have a different eschatology than Jerry Jenkins, but I lived in his apartment building because like, he bought the building with the money from the Left Behind series. So I'm like, okay, so some good can come out of uh, something, I guess, that I don't agree with. But so pre-tribulationalism, there's your Scrabble word. Um, 
So this stresses the uniqueness of this seven-year period uh, in that it's a unique time of tribulation that stands in a category of its own compared to the scope of trial in human history. So what this, so pre-tribulationalism, um, and this would probably uh, be in a, in every view besides the historicist, or not besides the historicist, besides the idealist view, uh, that, that this period of tribulation is a unique time of great trial in human history, unlike any other time of trial in, in history that humanity had experienced up to that point. Um, Pre-tribulationalism advocates for a two-phase coming of Christ. And so here's kind of a chart that, uh, that helps us kind of understand that, where Christ will come to remove believers from the earth before the great tribulation. So before the great tribulation, there'll be a resurrection uh, of those saints. Um, let's see here. Okay, yeah. So he'll come, remove believers from the earth before the great tribulation, and then we'll return again at the end of the great tribulation where there'll be a resurrection of the saints who died during the tribulation. So it's kind of like um, Jesus comes back for the church before the great tribulation, takes the church with him to heaven. People who uh, maybe became believers during the tribulation, Jesus then comes again, second coming with the church, and takes... Uh, takes those who have died but who were believers who were believers during the tribulation but died during the tribulation and then takes them as well before the millennium um, some key verses for kind of this view uh, that people will point to if if they're pre-tribulationists uh, would be first Thessalonians 1:10 and that that's specifically in that verse the part where it says Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. And then also 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, uh, where it says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So pre-tribulationism um, essentially sees like, like the church will not endure the wrath of God. Like that's, that's what we see in these verses. So which that means that the church then won't be present for the outpouring of that wrath in the tribulation, right? So um, what do they do with references in Matthew 24 where it says that some elect will be present during the tribulation? Pre-tribulationists would say that those elect uh, are elect Jews, not the church, who will be present during the tribulation. And this is this is key, and we don't, man, we don't have time in any lifetime to get into all the nuances of dispensationalism, but... Um, What's, what's necessary in pre-tribulationalism is also a view that, that Israel uh, is unique and separate from the church in God's redemptive program all the way to the end. All right. I wish I could get into the implications of that, but I can't. Um, so pre-tribulationalism, mid-tribulationalism, uh, essentially this uh, Jesus comes again in the middle. Rapture of the church in the middle. The reasoning behind this, uh, and you don't need all of these references, but uh, Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 12, 7, Daniel 12, 11, uh, Revelation 11, 2, 12, 6, and 12, 14. Essentially what you see in all of those verses is you see uh, days, uh, it's like it's like 1,260 days. It's references to a, a period of time that indicates roughly three and a half years. So those verses are in reference to something significant happening uh, halfway through a seven-year period. That's where you would get, um, that's kind of where they get the Christ will come mid-tribulation because three and a you know, seven divided by two is three and a half. Simple enough, right? So pre-tribulationalism, post-mid-tribulationalism, post-tribulationalism, all right? So this maintains that the coming of Christ for his church won't take place until the conclusion of the great tribulation. And, and post-tribulationalism avoids the term rapture, um, because rapture has with it connotations that the church will escape, um, will escape times of tribulation, uh, will escape this particular time of tribulation. So not only, oh hi, 
Not only is the, is the specific word rapture never used in Scripture, so that's one reason post-tribulationalists reject it, but it's also because um, basically post-tribulationalists see, like, there, there has been no guarantee given to the church that we will avoid times of hardship, even as it relates to the Great Tribulation. That's essentially what that is. And so um, I'm throwing out some things in my notes here. Uh, yeah, overwhelming evidence in Scripture that the church won't escape from trial. This was really key. Well, there's a distinction between tribulation in general and the great tribulation. So that's the uniqueness of this time of, of trial or tribulation. The difference is of degree, not of kind, if that makes sense. So what we're talking about is that the difference between tribulations that we, we'll, we'll put that in quotes, tribulations that we experience right now and the great tribulation Post-tribulationalists will say, like, the only difference between those two things are of degree, not because the Great Tribulation is categorically something different altogether, all right? So maybe something like this, where it's like, it's just like the yeah. greatest degree. Yeah, yeah, and, and the reason for this, uh, in full disclosure, I, I'm a post-tribulationalist. Part of it is because it, what we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, is when, uh, is when you see particularly when you look at that verse and, you, and it talks about meeting uh, meeting the Lord in the air, that word meet, the only other time that that's used, uh, it's, only, it's only used like three other times in Scripture. And when it's used, it's used in reference to, uh, to an entourage going out and meeting a bridegroom who's coming in, uh, who's, who's coming into a wedding banquet. So these people go out, meet the bridegroom, and then immediately accompany that, that bridegroom to the wedding banquet. It's not they go out and meet them, they go do their own thing, and then come back to the wedding banquet. It's always they go out with them, come back. And so what, what I think is happening in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that it's describing Christ coming, the church being taken up to meet him, and then immediately accompanying him back in his second coming, not a two-part stage. Um, that's my own view. Uh, people could disagree with me on that, and people do disagree with me on that. Um, but there you go. Next. All right. <laughs> fire All right. hose. It's yes. a fire hose. Fire yep. hose. Um, so uh, people will define maybe uh, where they stand in Revelation and, like, their stance, and they'll use language like, I'm, like, uh, pre-trib, post-millennial, post-mill, or whatever, you know. Uh, and, and so it's important, I think, to, to know and understand these things. So if, if tribulation is the first, maybe, chunk, millennialism is the second half. And millennialism is essentially, it's like, what do you do with Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6? Okay, let me just read the end of 20, 1 through 6. Uh, it says, uh, so uh, Satan is bound up, uh, talks about, uh, some of God's saints, um, and it says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, a millennium. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God of Christ, and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so what do we do with this a, a thousand years, all right? The first view is premillennialism. So essentially, that this is maybe the futurist view, that Christ will return bodily in power and glory before the 1,000 years. So if you put this chart up here, uh, so before the millennium to defeat the, the beast. So the, the beast is bound up uh, for 1,000 years, prevent, preventing him from deceiving the nations. Believers will have the resurrected body and will reign with Christ on earth with sinners. Um, so if you, if you look at this first view, the first view is classical pre-millennialism, all right? Um, this is saying that uh, Christ will come back before the millennium and believers will go through a time of great tribulation like what Jake was talking about before Christ returns. So church age, uh, there's a great tribulation and then the believers are caught up. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, and then believers come down and reign with Christ. Uh, so after this tribulation, Christ will return to establish uh, a millennial kingdom. When he comes ba back, believers who have died will be raised from the dead, their bodies reunited with their spirits, and these believers will reign with Christ for a thousand years. This is classical premillennialism, okay? Um, 
Uh, go back one, one more time. It, well, actually, for both of these, uh, just note, there's, uh, for these premillennialists, there is two resurrections. There's the resurrection of believers and then the resurrection of unbelievers. So if you go to the next one, pre-trib premillennialism, this is what Jake was talking about. Again, there's two resurrections here, but there's a church age. The believers are, are, are caught up in what would, you could call the rapture. So they avoid that, the seven years of tribulation, and then the believers come back with Christ and reign with Christ for a millennium prior to the resurrection of unbelievers and the judgment and a new heaven, new earth, and all that stuff. So Christ will return not only before the millennium, but also before the tribulation. Um, so the believers, again, will be in heaven when the tribulation comes, that seven-year period. So that's uh, premillennialism. Now let's go post. So postmillennialism. Um, uh, this is typically the... You're preter- doing great, by the way. You're yes. doing awesome. Yes. All, right. All of these things. Uh Postmillennialism is typically preterist or the historicist view. Christ will return after the thousand years in which the dragon is bound, Satan is bound. The thousand, this thousand years either has already begun or will begin soon. So we are in the church age uh, and we are rolling. And so essentially like we will roll through this millennium and then Christ will come after the millennium for, again, uh, here's just one, like one resurrection of believers, resurrection of unbelievers, judgment, new heaven, new earth. It'll all, all happen at the same time. So um, maybe people with this type of view will have a focus on cultural renewal and a high optimism on go- uh, gospel changing uh, lives and culture. Again, because it's like uh, the, the earth is being renewed during this, this thousand years. We want peace and righteousness here on earth. And then after this period, Christ will come back. Both believers and unbelievers will be judged, and we'll talk about um, new heaven and new earth. So that's post-millennialism, right? So Jesus will come back after that 1,000 years. The last view is amillennialism, right? Typically idealist. So Christ will return uh, after the epoch. Essentially, like the 1,000 years is symbolized. It's not a literal 1,000 years, uh, but it's rather like a figure of speech for just like a long time. So uh, they would view Revelation 21 through 6 as, again, like right now, like we are in that time right now. And then uh, you get to the moment when Christ comes back, resurrection, okay, again, one resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. Um, so again, the, the Revelation 20 is, is representing the present church age, um, maintains that there's no future millennium yet to come. And essentially that Satan was bound, when it talks about Satan bound in, in chapter 20, it was bound in Christ's death and resurrection, like happened at the cross. Um, so again, all of this, uh, um, all the end time events happen at once, uh, immediately after Christ's return, judgment, all that stuff. So there you go. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. Uh, now we're going to start interacting with some of these a bit. Okay. Uh, wh- one thing I would say, and here's, yeah, the, the, another helpful maybe you added chart. color to keep your attention. Yes. Yeah. So. It's like a third Hopefully. grade classroom tactic that yep. you just imposed right there. Do teachers do that? Add yeah. Color? Okay. It has to be a thing. They're not good colors. Yeah. But it's something. no, no, no. Right. Yep. Uh, so you you have these different four views. Um, I thought it was really good. Shane Klein sent me this clip of like John Piper interacting with other godly men who hold each person held maybe a different view, and uh, and men that they all like respected and just interacting on these things. And I think it's important to recognize that each of these uh, like primary millennial views falls within the framework of historic Christian orthodoxy, right? So you can, we can all be Bible believing, gospel loving Christians and, and hold these different views. Um, so, and, and it's true that it is held amongst um, a lot of different um, like Christians. Uh, you want to like kick us into like Candeo's position on all these things? Yeah. So basically you ask, okay, why in the world does this matter? And how should we hold a position? Okay. First, how should we hold a position loosely and graciously? So you have in your notes there, Candeo's, uh, we'll call it official position. That's if you go on the website and you click on beliefs and then you go down to the bottom, click on last things. This is exactly what's on the website. What you're going to see is that it doesn't give particulars on exactly when. It doesn't give particulars on exactly how. Uh, It just says uh, that Jesus is coming back. Uh, And there's a reason for that. It's because, like, we can be sure of that, right? Um, and, and, and what can happen is is that there can be there can be if you get if you get in particular circles this can actually become a a fairly like heated thing you know where it's like this is like a big you know thing of debate and what 
what can happen in that is that debates about these kinds of things can end up detracting from the main uh, from the main issue, and that issue is that we have the hope and anticipation that Jesus will one day return. Like, how crazy is it to miss like that getting stuck on the how and the when, right? It's kind of like being more concerned about how you're going to die than you are about where you go after you die. Like, but a lot of people are. It's like, I just don't want to die like that. It's like, okay, you, I understand that. That is scary. But death, like that moment of death is like this long and then you have eternity, okay? So like, let's not miss the forest for the trees here. Um, my my own view, and and there's reasons for this, There, I certainly could be convinced otherwise, is I'm I'm more of I'm a post-tribulation, pre-millennial. That's kind of where I land. Uh, I've got my leanings on that. Um, but again, this isn't something to be super uh, divisive about. Um, you can be passionate about it, that's fine, but like to not be divisive about it. And so, uh, basically, what we wanted to do right after we just fire hose you with a bunch of things that you might not remember unless you go back and look at these slides, um, we just I just want to read you from Revelation 21, because this is where we're going here. Uh, Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So this is after everything we just talked about. All right? So land on your view. That's great. Brothers and sisters in Christ, like, like when when this all happens, we'll be we'll be in heaven together going like, oh, I guess you were right. Or oh man, we were all or, wrong. Yeah, yeah like, nobody was right. Yeah. <laughs> wow, well, that was crazy, yeah. wasn't it? But th- this is where we're going. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And the sea was no more. You have you have to listen to this through the through the biblical writer's mind. Like the sea was always associated with chaos and death. Like we think, like oh, I like the ocean. It's like no, no, they didn't like that. Like you you went out to sea and you like you would die. Okay, the, and we see these narratives all throughout, like like Egyptians crossing uh, or Israel crossing the Red Sea. Uh, there, yeah. There's a lot of imagery in here where it's like, and the sea was no more, which when you hear that, you got to go, again, this is symbolism, uh, chaos, death, and destruction. That's what they would have heard, and the sea was no more. Um, and I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for a husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's where we're going. Like, the culmination of redemptive history is where God once again dwells with his people spiritually and bodily, like that's where we're going, and that's the hope that we have, and so that's why we can hold these positions loosely and graciously. It's because our ultimate hope isn't in our assurance of how and when that'll happen, but it's in the assurance of what it what will be, what is coming, like that we that we anticipate and look forward to, and that's just a that's just a beautiful thing. And so, practical implications. All right, sure. Yeah, because I, I do think this this matters, right? Uh, Gruden would say heaven is the place where God most fully makes known his presence, right? So the best part of heaven is that we will be in the presence of God and enjoying unhindered fellowship with him. Like that's that's awesome. And that's what we should look forward to. And, and I think Christian eschatology and this apocalyptic writing is important. Uh, and Bob Thune Jr. said this, so that's really helpful. Christian eschatology is a vision of the future this is awesome, that orients our life of the present. Christian eschatology is a vision of the future that orients our life in the present. I remember when I was at Greece and Turkey, I talked about this last week, but reading through the book of Revelation and feeling a sense of urgency. One of like my friends and family that don't know Jesus, I'm like, I need to, like there's this like angst in me, like I need to continue pressing forward. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but also there's a, this, this like beautiful piece of like, and this is where we are going. And, and it should change the way you live today. Um, Ray Comfort has this awesome 
illustration where he talks about, um, you know, two people on a plane, one's given a parachute and told they're going to have a comfortable ride. Uh, and they're like, well, what the heck? And it's, it's actually uncomfortable and all this stuff. Well, nobody told them they were going to jump out of plane halfway through. The other person was given a parachute and said nothing about comfort, but said, hey, you're going to be jumping out of a, the plane about halfway through. He's like, well, okay. Well, so he could care less how uncomfortable the parachute was while he was sitting because he's like, at some point, I'm going to be jumping out of this plane. So, like, we will experience discomfort in things in this world, but it's like, at some point, like, Jesus is coming back, and so we're like, well, I'm holding on to this parachute because I'm looking forward to, like, jumping out of the plane and releasing the parachute and being safe and underneath, like, God's presence for eternity. So uh, it changes the way we live today. Like, our most valued treasure should be, like, looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth and being with Jesus forever and worshiping him. And, and, and like, let your imagination and, like, thoughts go that direction. And it'll change the way that you think about even the trials that you face today. It's like, yeah, this is uncomfortable, but there's a day coming. So kind of like, who cares? <laughs> you know? Like, it's yeah, it's it's going to be hard now, but Jesus is coming back. So that's yeah. all I'd say. Yeah. As far as practical implications uh, outside of that sense of urgency and anticipation, um, like I said before, th- this will, it should at least heighten our awareness and uh, help us have discernment as we interact with different schools of theology and understand the subtleties uh, that um, that language can can bring with it, uh, and particularly, uh, like I talked about, uh, with kingdom language. So, um, one of the things, so along with sending this out, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and send out another thing on, uh, on kingdom language, because we've just been noticing this kind of being a prevalent thing, um, particularly amongst college students, uh, that we're trying to help, uh, not, not eliminate kingdom language is so great, uh, but we want to give some definitions of it and help it be precise because uh, that's when it's most helpful is when there's a, there's a precision to the language. So I'll, I'll send that out to you as well. Um, like I said, this class was meant to be a fire hose. Uh, it was meant to stretch us. It was meant to push us. Uh, you are the faithful remnant. Um, some people fell off the bandwagon, and that's totally okay. I'm not mad at them, but they're dead to me. So uh, if you're listening to this, no. Uh, <laughs> Um, some helpful resources. So hopefully in the fire hose approach, this is also kind of like wet your appetite a little bit um, or it's or it's scarred you for life and you don't want to open a book again. Uh, probably one of those two. If you're in the former, here are some resources that we think will be helpful. If you actually go downstairs, uh, the Candeo Resource Library is available and totally uh, available to Everybody at our church, it's, it's awesome. Uh, Mark and Amanda Jackson did a lot of work on that. A uh, few of us other elders helped with that, but really it was, it was a lot of Mark and Amanda, if we're being honest. And so uh, they did a great job kind of curating um, a, a library down there, and, and we just hope to see that expand even more. Um, another one, Christian Theology uh, by Millard Erickson. Uh, I've really found um, his book to be incredibly helpful as it relates uh, you, you'll you'll find people who fall in probably one of two camps, at least in the streams that we kind of swim in. It, you're either Grudem or Erickson. Um, and so, yeah. I'm with Grudem. Yeah, I, I know Grudem. you are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, understanding the big picture of the Bible, that's this book. Um, uh, Grudem helped with it. Uh, John Collins and Thomas Schreiner. Uh, this was kind of the the supplementary text that we used in kind of creating the content for the class. So uh, some of the stuff that you got in the instruction portion of the class came from this book while you had D.A. Carson's um, The God Who Is There. So understanding the big picture of the Bible, again, it's not that big. So the the God Who Is There is probably thicker than this. Uh, if you're wanting, if you're really, like, if you're like, man, I really like this kind of, like, overview, survey style, um, kind of like, uh, yeah, survey. If you want a little bit of, like, a biblical theology kind of thrown in there, uh, Thomas Schreiner's The King and His Beauty is absolutely fantastic. It's it's a thicker book. Um, it is technically a seminary textbook, but it it's more worshipful to read than you would probably envision any textbook being, okay? And so if you if you want to nerd out, uh, The King and His Beauty is your book. Like, I would read it, and it would just blow my mind. I'm like, I never saw these. Like, he, he weaves the thread of redemptive history so well throughout from Genesis to Revelation. It's just, 
it's it's amazing. So, um, and he also co-wrote uh, Understanding the Big Picture of the Bible. So those are some resources. Uh, again, I'll send this out. Um, hopefully this was this class was helpful. This was the first time we've ever done a class like this. And so um, you probably got in your email the, uh, the equipping class survey. Please fill that out because we realized that like the first version of these classes are kind of like the beta version. And so really what we're wanting to do is to get feedback from these initial offerings and be able to know like how to tweak the class, its content, its presentation, its expectations, homework, all that stuff. Uh, we want to just keep making this better um, so that one, it has like the broadest reach possible. Um, and also in like brings the value that we hope that it does uh, for the format that we're doing. So if you haven't filled that out already, please fill it out. If you take any of our other equipping classes, you'll also get that survey as well. So we're just going to keep surveying you to death. All right. So I'm not sorry about that because it's really helpful. Um, and, and honest, like, like be honest in those two. I know sometimes it's easy to just like do the party line, like everything was great. It's like, no, it wasn't. Like tell us what wasn't great because we want to make it better. So anyways, we've got like five seconds for questions. Um, Crush so it. if we can if we can solve all of your eschatological issues in five seconds, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the part of dispensationalism we weren't gonna be able to get into. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> It's a good question, though. That, that, that is do with a big Romans question. 9 like, and, it, like yeah. dispensationalism, if that's a new word, like it's definitely worth your uh, your time and study because um, it's, it's, it is important to to think through Israel's place in redemptive history mm-hmm. as it relates now and how, does, how do you view Israel in relation to the church today. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, it's important, but we're not going to get into it, at least right now. I'd lo- yeah, I'd love to, though. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's all we got. Thank you guys so much for being faithful and, yeah, plowing through it. <laughs>